0: volume three chapter seventeen of a charming fellow this librivox recording is in the public domain a charming fellow by francis eleanor trollope volume three chapter seventeen castalia was driven home and walked up the path of the tiny garden in front of ivy lodge with a step much like her ordinary one she went into the drawing-room and looked about her curiously as if she were a stranger seeing the place for the first time then she sat down for a minute still in her bonnet and shawl but she got up again quickly from the sofa, holding her hand to her throat as if she were choking, and went out to the garden behind the house and from thence to the meadows near the river. There was at the bottom of the garden, and outside of it, a miserable, dilapidated wooden shed, euphoniously called a summer-house. There was a worm-eaten wooden bench in it, looking towards the wit, and commanding a view of the wide meadows on the other side of it, of a turn in the river, now lead-coloured beneath the dreary sky, and of the distant spire of Duckwell Church, rising beyond the hazy woods of Pudcombe. No one ever entered this summer-house. It was rotting to pieces with damp and decay, and was inhabited by a colony of insects and a toad that squatted in one corner. In this wretched place Castalia sat down, being indeed unable to walk farther, but feeling a sensation of suffocation at the mere thought of returning to the house. She fancied she could not breathe there. A steaming mist was rising from the river and the damp meadows beyond it. The grey clouds seemed to touch the grey horizon. It was cold and the last brown leaf or two hanging as it seemed by a thread on the boughs of a tree just within sight from the summer-house twirled and shook and shuddered in the slight gust of wind that arose now and again there was not a sound to be heard except the mournful lowing of some cattle in a distant field until all at once a movement of the air brought from whitford the sound of the old chimes muffled by the heavy atmosphere there sat castalia and stared at the river and the mist and the brown withered leaves much as she had stared at the blank yard wall in the office my heart is sore pained within me and the terrors of death are fallen upon me fearfulness and trembling are come upon me and horror hath overwhelmed me she heard a voice saying these words distinctly she did not start she scarcely felt surprise the direful lamentation was in harmony with all she saw and heard and felt again the voice spoke our fathers trusted in thee they trusted and thou didst deliver them they cried unto thee and were delivered they trusted in thee and were not confounded but i am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised of the people castalia heard scarcely listening the words flowed by her like a tune that brings tears to the eyes by mere sympathy with its sad sound presently a man passed before her walking with an unequal pace now quick now slow now stopping outright he had his hands clasped at the back of his neck his head was bent down and he was talking aloud to himself ay there have been such the lot has fallen upon me i know it with a sure knowledge it is borne in upon me with a certainty that pierces through bone and marrow i am of the number of those that go down to the pit why o lord nay though he slay me yet i will trust in him for he is not a man as i am that i should answer him and we should come together in judgment he stopped in his walk stood still for a second or two and then turned to pace back again in so doing he saw castalia she also looked full at him and recognized the methodist preacher david powell went up to her without hesitation he remembered her at once and he remembered too in a confused way something of what mrs thimbleby had been recently telling him about dissensions between this woman and her husband of unhappiness and quarrels and what was that the widow had said of young mrs errington being jealous of rhoda ah yes he had it all now the time had been when david powell would have had to wrestle hard with indignation against any one who should have spoken evil of rhoda he would have felt a hot human flush of anger and would have combated it as a stirring of the unregenerate man within him but all such feelings were over with him No ray from the outside world appeared able to pierce the gloom which had gathered thicker and thicker in his own mind, unless it touched his sense of sympathy with suffering. He was still sensitive to that, as certain chemicals are to the light. He went up close to Castalia and said, without any preliminary or usual greeting, You are in affliction. Have you called upon the Lord? Have you cast your burthen upon him? He is a good shepherd. He will carry the weary and foot-sore of his flock lest they faint by the way and perish utterly it was noticeable when he spoke that his voice which had been of such full sweetness was now hoarse and even harsh here and there like a fine instrument that has been jarred this did not seem to be altogether due to physical causes for there still came out of his mouth every now and then a tone that was exquisitely musical but the discord seemed to be in the spirit that moved the voice and could not guide it with complete freedom and mastery castalia shook her head impatiently and turned her eyes away from him but she did not do so with any of her old hauteur and intimation of the vast distance which separated her from her humbler fellow-creatures pain of mind had familiarized her with the conception that she held her humanity in common with a very heterogeneous multitude had powell been a sleek smug personage like brother jackson Veiling profound self-complacency under the technical announcement of himself as a miserable sinner, she might have turned from him in disgust. As it was, she felt merely the unwillingness to be disturbed, of a creature in whom the numbness of apathy has succeeded to acute anguish. She wanted to be rid of him. He looked at her with a yearning pity which was so fundamental a part of his nature. "'Pray,' he said, clasping his hands together, "'go to your father, which is in heaven, and he shall give you rest.' oh god loves you he loves you no one loves me returned castalia with white rigid lips then she got up from the bench and went back into her own garden and into the house with the air of a person walking in sleep powell looked after her sadly if she would but pray he murmured i would pray for her i would wrestle with the lord on her behalf but of late i have feared more and more that my prayers are not acceptable "'that my voice is an abomination to the Lord.' He resumed his walk along the river-bank, speaking aloud and gesticulating to himself as he went. Meanwhile, Castalia wandered about her own house like a ghost, as the servants said. She went from the little dining-room to the drawing-room, and then she painfully mounted the steep staircase to her bedroom, opened the door of her husband's little dressing-closet, shut it again, and went downstairs once more. She could not sit still, she could not read, she could not even think she could only suffer and move about restlessly, as if with a dim instinctive idea of escaping from her suffering. Presently she began to open the drawers of a little toy cabinet in the drawing room, and examine their contents, as if she had never seen them before. From that she went to a window-seat, made hollow and with a cushioned lid, so that it served as a seat and a box, and began to rummage among its contents. These consisted chiefly of valueless scraps, odds and ends, put there to be hidden and out of the way among them were some of poor mrs errington's wedding-presents to her son and daughter-in-law castalia's maid slater had unceremoniously consigned these to oblivion together with a few other old-fashioned articles under the generic name of rubbish there was a pair of hand-screens elaborately embroidered in silk very faded and out of date mrs errington declared them to be the work of her grand-aunt the beautiful miss jacintha Ancrum, who made such a great match and became a marchioness there was an ancient carved ivory fan yellow with age brought by a cadet of the house of ancram from india as a present to some forgotten sweetheart there was a little cardboard box covered with fragments of raised rice paper arranged in a pattern this was the work of mrs errington's own hands in her school-girl days and was of the kind called if i mistake not filigree work castalia took these and other things out of the window-seat and examined them and put them back one by one, moving exactly like an automaton figure that had been wound up to perform these motions. When she came to the filigree box, she opened that too. There was a Tonkin bean in it, filling the box with its faint sweet odor. There was a pair of gold buckles that seemed to be attenuated with age, and a garnet brooch with one or two stones missing, and then at the bottom of the box was something flat, wrapped in silver paper. She unwrapped it and looked at it. It was a water-colour drawing done by Algernon immediately on his return from Lan in the first flush of his love-making, and representing himself and Rhoda standing side by side in front of the little cottage where they had lodged there. Algernon had given himself pinker cheeks, bluer eyes, and more amber-coloured hair than nature had endowed him with. Rhoda was equally over-tinted. There was no merit in the drawing, which was stiff and schoolboyish, but the very exaggerations of form and color emphasized the likeness, in a way not to be mistaken. Castalia trembled from head to foot as she looked at the two rosy, simpering faces. A curious ripple or tremor ran over her body, such as may be observed in persons' recovering consciousness after a swoon. She tore the drawing into small fragments. Her teeth were set. Her eyes glared. She looked like a murderess. She trod the scattered bits into the carpet with her heel then as if with an afterthought she swept them contemptuously into the bright steel shovel and threw them into the fire and stood and watched them blaze and smoulder after that she wrapped her shawl more tightly round her she had forgotten to remove either it or her bonnet on coming in and went out at the front door and walked straight into whitford and to jonathan maxfield's house she asked for the master The old man was at home, in the little parlour, and Sally showed Mrs. Errington into the room, almost without the ceremony of tapping with her knuckles at the door, and then made off to the kitchen to tell Mrs. Grimshaw. The lady's face had scared her. Old Max was sitting near the dull fire which burned in the grate. The big Bible, his constant companion now, lay open on the table, but he had not been devoting his attention to that solely. He had had a large old-fashioned wooden desk brought down from his own room, and had been fingering the papers in it, reading some and merely glancing at the outside folds of others he now looked up at castalia without recognizing her what is your business with me he asked peering at her in perplexity i've come to speak to you began castalia and at the first sound of her voice maxfield recognized her he remembered the only visit she had paid him previously when she came to beg that rhoda might be allowed to visit her she had taken a great fancy to his pretty rhoda this skinny yellow-faced fine lady Well, she might show what civility she pleased to Rhoda, no objection to that. Indeed, it was a proceeding to be encouraged, seeing that it probably caused a good deal of discomfort and embarrassment to Algernon. So he gave a little nod, meant to be courteous, and said, "'Oh, I didn't know you just at first. Won't you be seated?' Castalia refused by a gesture, and stood still opposite to him, with one hand on the table, apparently in some embarrassment how to begin.' Then it flashed on old Max that this Honourable Mrs., as he called her, had probably come to thank him, and found it not altogether easy to do so. But what could Castalia have to thank him for? This. Rhoda had so implored her father to relieve Algernon from his anxiety about the bills, that at length the old man had said with a chuckle, "'Tell you what, Rhoda, I'll hand them over to Mr. Diamond, and maybe he will give them to you as a wedding present if he gets the school, and then you can do what you like with them.' my gentleman won't be above taking a present from you or your husband i've seen what meanness she can do and what dirt he can swallow and not even make a wry face over it ay dirt as would turn many a poor labouring man's stomach rhoda upon this had consulted matthew diamond and had not found it difficult to make him agree with her wish to give up the bills to Algernon. indeed although he had almost come to old max's opinion of his former pupil he would not for the world have behaved so as to make rhoda suppose that he bore him a grudge rhoda's errand to the post-office that afternoon had been to bring algernon this comforting news she had taken care not to tell her father of mrs algernon's behaviour but had come home and cried a little quietly in her own room and kept her tears and the cause of them to herself therefore it was that jonathan maxfield supposed the fine lady to have come to thank him for his magnanimity on behalf of her absent husband and he was already preparing to give her a dose as he phrased it and to spare her no item of rhoda's prosperity and wealth and good prospects in the world Castalia remained leaning with one hand on the table, and did not continue her speech during the second or two, in which these thoughts and intentions were passing through old Maxfield's brain. But it was by no means that she hesitated from embarrassment or lack of words. Rather, the words crowded to her lips too quickly and fiercely for utterance. "'I've come to speak to you about your daughter,' she said at length. "'Aye, aye Miss Maxfield's a bit of a friend o' yours. Miss Maxfield's always been kind to all the family ever since we've known them. "'But you best be seated.' "'They say you are an honest, decent man,' Castalia went on, "'neither seating herself nor noticing the invitation to do so. "'It may be so. I am willing to believe it. "'But if so, you are grossly deceived, cheated, "'and played upon by that vile girl.' Maxfield brought his two clenched fists heavily down on the table, and half raised himself in his chair. "'Stop,' said he. "'Who are you talking of?' you may believe me i tell you i have watched i have seen she was in love with my husband years ago she used every art to catch him and now now that he is married she receives secret visits from him do you know that he came at night ten o'clock at night to your house when you were away she goes to the post-office slyly to see him i caught her there this morning leaving a private message for him with the clerk is that decent "'Is it what you wish? Do you sanction it? She writes to him. She has turned his heart against me. He schemes to keep me out of the office. I know why now. Oh, yes, I am not the blind dupe they think for. She has made him more cruel, more wicked to me than I could have imagined any man could be. My heart is broken. But as true as there is a God in heaven, I'll have amends made to me.' she shall beg my pardon on her knees and you had better look to it if you don't want her character to be torn to pieces by every foul tongue in this town i have borne enough keep her at home keep her from decoying other women's husbands i warn you maxfield who had been struggling to reach the bell pulled it so violently that the wire was broken at the peal betty grimshaw came running in terrified mercy brother-in-law she cried what is it "'Get the police,' gasped old Max, as if he were choking. "'Send someone for a policeman to turn that mad queen out of my house. "'She's not fit for a decent house. "'She's—she's—oh, but you shall repent this. "'I'll sell you up every stick of trumpery in the place, "'you audacious Jezebel. "'Turn her out of doors, I say. "'Do you hear me?' betty and the servant stood white and quivering looking from the old man unable to rise from his chair without help and the lady who stood opposite to him glaring with a medusa face neither of the two frightened women stirred hand or foot to fulfil the master's behest but castalia relieved them from any perplexity on that score at least by voluntarily turning to leave the room in the doorway she met rhoda who had run downstairs in alarm at the violent pealing of the bell castalia drew herself suddenly aside as though something unspeakably loathsome stood in her path held her dress away from any passing contact with the amazed girl and rushed out of the house chapter seventeen